0: Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host Neftal Benesty, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer: Always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode twenty-four, Shane Kenny's "The Benzodiazepine Medical Disaster," featuring Emma of the podcast Unfiltered, and today it's February fourteenth, two thousand and twenty-three. In this episode, Shane Kelly's The Benzodiaspine Medical Disaster. Its initial release was in 2016. Links to the full documentary, which is around 52 minutes, will be in the description. I've taken the liberty to isolate around 30 minutes of audio from the documentary, which you will hear shortly. After the excerpts, I am joined by the lovely Emma, featured in an earlier episode, and she is from Beating the Benzo in her podcast, Unfiltered and we discuss our take on the documentary. Correction, Shane Kenny.
1: ...home of Professor Heather Ashton, who has become a veritable angel of the North for those who have suffered and are still suffering from the terrifying nightmare caused by taking benzodiazepines, Valium, Ativan, Xanax, clonopin and hundreds of others prescribed by their doctors. The many side effects are painful and agonising and can last for years, perhaps permanently. There's evidence pointing to brain damage which the drug companies, health agencies and governments ignore. Professor Ashton is joined by another leading international expert, Professor Malcolm Lader OBE, in giving exclusive interviews for this documentary, helping to expose this disgraceful scandal which has persisted for over half a century.
2: It's a medical disaster, we have had many before and we have many again, but at least we can try and rectify that disaster or at least rectify the effects of that disaster.
3: It is a medical disaster, it's a pandemic actually. It's like an illness all over the world uh, of overprescription of drugs. And the reason is partly because doctors don't think what they're prescribing, number one, number two, pushing by the drug companies, Um, number two, and number three, not enough research.
2: At the present moment, we have this large group we have got to try and set up facilities to help them come off the medication if they should want. We need to develop alternative methods of treatment which don't expose people to pharmacological dangers Uh, and we need to compensate them if we've made a mistake.
1: In Newcastle, Professor Ashton set up a clinic for benzodiazepine victims. The drugs are anxiolytic and hypnotic, relieving acute anxiety and insomnia. But disastrously, the actual use has been extended by doctors, used as a muscle relaxant and for pains, sports injuries, normal life stresses like bereavement, tinnitus, and in my case, it was from Meniere's disease, an inner ear problem. Despite overwhelming evidence of dangers, doctors, health authorities, and governments have failed to protect citizens from this crime against humanity. Unbelievably, after more than 50 years, new victims worldwide every year are being led by their doctors into this vortex of pain and suffering, completely avoidable if prescribing is sharply curtailed by law, and patients by law are clearly and strongly warned of the dangers.
3: This was a real, and still is a real tragedy. As I say, people lose their jobs, their income, their the relationships, their marriages.
2: What we need, I think, is you know some a wake-up call uh, where we find people who are showing signs of brain damage, even if it's just functionally to start with, and that this would. Um, act as a catalyst.
1: Drug companies now do list a lot of side effects, but what they don't tell you is that for a significant number of benzodiazepine sufferers, potentially millions worldwide over half a century, the symptoms, particularly the physical and painful, do not go away and can be crippling for years. In some cases, I think you suggested it was uh, 10 to 15% uh, of those suffering from uh, withdrawal symptoms uh, they have protracted withdrawal symptoms the, the symptoms go on for longer than a year and sometimes for years and possibly even permanently
3: yes uh, that's only an estimate though um, there were some who didn't um, uh, seem to recover fully but most of them lost their anxiety but there were people who still had muscle pains muscle spasms mostly physical things actually, but they'd lost their anxiety and depression and nightmares and all those. Uh, The mental systems went, but the physical symptoms tended to be long-term.
2: Yes, now this is even more contentious, what we call the persistent withdrawal syndrome. And we described that, and so did Heather Ashton many years ago, and we were concerned about this. Now, I laid down quite firm criteria. I said that this would have to be a condition in which somebody stopped the medication, developed a withdrawal syndrome with the symptoms I've just mentioned, but those symptoms persisted. I didn't see this coming on as a separate uh, syndrome later with a gap of uh, symptom-free, but there are variations on
3: this. Some people do get permanent, uh, what feels like permanent symptoms. We don't know the causes of them, nobody's ever looked at them, Uh, so we just need to do some research on that, but we haven't.
1: In the 1980s you told the BBC that uh, withdrawing from benzodiazepines was much more difficult than withdrawing from heroin.
2: Yes, that's true and I would often in uh, in collaboration with some colleagues take people who had addiction problems with the benzodiazepines but also addiction problems with heroin or cocaine or whatever amphetamines uh, and we found that uh, it was actually easier for people to withdraw from heroin um, with help uh, than it was for them to come off the
1: benzodiazepines what was the response to those remarks
2: Oh, I think it was just (coughs) generally disbelief. Everybody thinks it's very difficult to get off heroin. Yet people are doing it all the time. They're admitted to uh, uh, prison, and they go even go cold turkey. But usually there's some help, Um, so it's not that difficult to come off heroin. Um, Benzodiazepines can be much more of a problem, particularly in the minority, which uh, I've mentioned, that um, have uh, severe withdrawal reactions and may become persistent.
1: And you referred in your recent paper that you've written about benzodiazepines, you referred to um, those people suffering an agony. Is that the way it appeared to you when you were listening to case histories being described to you? Um, because people do say it's like going through hell, and I experienced this myself.
2: Yes, I think that's so. I think the people who are getting a severe reaction, the symptoms are so complex, they're so diffuse, so persistent, they're so interfering with day-to-day life, that they are uh, an agony. But I emphasize that most people don't get to that degree of severity.
1: But Professor Lader and others say that the minority who can have a severe reaction could be up to 30 percent. The symptoms are myriad. In her clinic, Professor Ashton recorded the many distressing conditions.
4: Pain, limbs, back and neck. Pain, teeth and jaw. Paresthesia, stabbing pins and needles. Limbs and face. Stiffness, limbs, back and jaw. Tremor, muscle pain, twitches dizziness, tinnitus, hypersensitivity to sound, light, touch, and taste, fits, seizures, anxiety, depression, poor memory and concentration, insomnia, nightmares, hallucinations, agoraphobia, and other phobias, panic attacks and palpitations, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation. All patients complained of difficulty walking. This appeared to result from a combination of sensory disturbance, muscle weakness, pain and stiffness. Pain in various parts of the body was prominent. Neck pain and occipital headache, pain in the limbs, described as aching, bursting, cutting, were all common and often severe. All patients had feelings of pins and needles, tingling, crawling in the skin, numbness or altered sensation at some time usually affecting the limbs in a glove and stocking distribution.
1: As the eminent Irish expert, Dr John O'Connor, says about benzodiazepine withdrawal, the body becomes its own personal torture chamber. Can you describe in simple terms what is happening in our brains with these psychoactive drugs?
3: Well, uh, the benzodiazepines enhance the actions of a an important neurotransmitter that's a chemical in the brain uh, that normally has an inhibitory or calming effect and so the way they work initially is very clever uh, because they just give you they up this effect of calming all over the brain so they relieve tension they affect balance like alcohol and they affect thinking and sensations and brain function everywhere and then, uh, but the body is much cleverer than people think, because it says, "Hey, there's a, there's a foreign body here, a thing called a benzo. Um, I'm going to adapt to it. And so they downregulate these receptors. And in the end, it's, the drug doesn't work anymore because they've, take, they've stopped this enhancement. And so the patient starts to get withdrawal symptoms saying hey I need some more of that stuff so very often the dose has to be escalated to get the same effect and if it isn't people get what are withdrawal symptoms even though they're on the same dose. Is that
1: common? Have you come across those suffering from uh, withdrawal symptoms and of course if you are suffering withdrawal symptoms before you have stopped taking benzodiazepines and then you want to stop taking benzodiazepines so that you can recover you're obviously going to go through a really horrible time yeah torrid time while you're getting there uh, stopping taking benzodiazepines well it
3: gets worse unless you do it very very gradually and this again what, what the, um go to detoxes uh, they've got lots of detox players in America they take you off quickly well that's hopeless because it doesn't give you time to get the equilibrium to swing back.
1: After over 50 years, benzodiazepines are still prescribed carelessly, negligently and inappropriately. Roche discovered and launched the first Librium in 1960 and then ignored a grim warning about its dangers two years before selling Valium. Professor Lader takes up the story of the man who discovered benzodiazepines. A man
2: called Leo Sternbach who uh, was Polish and in the 1930s he was working for Roche uh, and was synthesizing various compounds and examining them for effect on the body and the brain. He didn't find a great deal so he stopped working on them. And then when problems the Nazis came into power uh, Roche were taking their Jewish uh, staff and Leo Sternbach was Jewish uh, out of Europe and uh, relocating them in the United States so Leo Sternbach went to the United States and looking for something to do he picked up these compounds again and uh, tried various substitutions in them they're quite complex and then eventually discovered a compound which he called metaminodiazepoxide a long name which then changed to chlordiase epoxide and we know it better as librium and he established its effect in animals and then uh, quickly in humans and uh, decided they had a very good tranquilizer and it became very popular very quickly indeed.
1: But there was some research done on Librium, even before Valium was developed, in 1961, by a man called Hollister. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Well, uh, yes, I knew Leo Hollister. He was, uh, uh, I think he's dead now, but he was um, concerned about about Librium, concerned that he didn't believe it was devoid of addiction properties and he did a study which I suppose now we would regard as unethical where he practically force-fed Librium to some uh, inmates in a prison in the United States and they became addicted and then he stopped it and uh, there were major side major problems major side effects I think one or two of them actually had epileptic fits Uh, and he warned that this was going to be a problem in the future.
1: And that was 1961, 1961. and they'd just been on the drugs for two months?
2: They'd been on for two months. This was 1961, and the paper was published in a journal called
1: Psychopharmacology. Why did you establish your clinic dealing with uh, benzodiazepines in the first place?
3: People taking the benzodiazepines, many of them, by that time had taken it long term, uh, years and years. I mean, I've seen people who've been on it for 20 years or more, and they realized that after a while the drugs didn't work anymore, and not only that, they were getting iller, and the patients that were referred to me uh, were referred by the doctor because they said, look, there's something wrong with these drugs, I'm getting worse instead of better.
2: We were interested in the um, effects long-term of benzodiazepines, and also we were running a clinic here for people, and we were getting increasing number of referrals for people who said they could not come off the benzodiazepines because of a variety of symptoms. Uh, We discussed this and assumed that they had uh, pushed the dose up they hadn't. So this is how we first got the idea of normal dose iatrogenic dependence. What people said when they tried to stop was really firstly that their anxiety or their insomnia or their tensions came back and were worse. But also they got new symptoms, and these were particularly perceptual symptoms as we call them, so that you got people saying that um, sounds were very loud that lights were very bright, that they felt unsteady, uh, that they had pains uh, and uh, ringing in the ears and things of that sort.
3: But in the 1980s, there was first a trickle and then a stream and finally a river of people all wanted to get off the benzodiazepines. And that's how it started. Uh, and it fell to me because I was interested in what was causing this. That, um, that I got involved in it.
1: What kind of symptoms were people suffering from when they came to your clinic?
3: Well, all sorts of things. Um, they were very, very anxious, all of them, and I think that's what, or most of them, put off the doctors, and they, had, they couldn't sleep, and they got nightmares and dreams, and they were jittery, and some of them had a tremor. They developed agoraphobia, social phobias, some of them paranoid, some of them very um, uh, angry, sort of rage, and with sensory disturbances, so that um, lights seemed too bright, the room walls seemed to be sloping that you know, all these sort of strange things. Some of them were afraid they were going mad, and um, sounds too bright, and tinnitus, their ears ringing, and all sorts of things. And in addition to that, tremors and um, muscle spasms, patches of numbness, muscle pains, muscle jerks, uh, a whole host of symptoms, both physical and mental. And um, then I had patients who'd been told they had multiple sclerosis and were doomed for life. And you got them off the benzos and the symptoms <laughs> disappeared. So, you, you know, it became clear it was due to the drugs.
2: We had one or two cases where people had epileptic fits which you might expect and of course that harks back to Hollister's study. But by and large it was just this terrible uh, hypersensitivity and also a general feeling of being very unwell, not functioning properly.
3: If you stop benzos suddenly uh, you get fits and it can kill you uh, incidentally. Uh, so that's why you have to withdraw slowly
1: some of these symptoms were really terrifying for the people suffering them Uh, and in some cases people were actually becoming disabled isn't that the case
3: oh it certainly was I mean because these symptoms could be quite overwhelming were very severe Um, there were even suicides people got very depressed and um, led to the breakup of families marriages leading you became impossible to work you lost your job you lost your income very often uh, and uh, also it was difficult to get any um, compensation because nobody realized it was a real illness
1: professor Leder has described this as a medical disaster would you agree
3: yeah th- this was a real and still is a real tragedy
1: Uh, But just to be clear on the issue, um, you say that at the same time not very many facilities were being provided around the country to look after these people. Uh, And these people were measured in hundreds of thousands, millions?
3: Well, we think uh, from the GP studies, uh, at least millions in the country. And so the patients themselves usually started setting up their own support groups. And it was they, and still is, support groups who get more people off and give them more support than any doctor, because uh, there are no NHS clinics now.
1: One of the difficulties in getting people to focus on the dangers of benzodiazepines appears to be the fact that some people can get off the drugs relatively easy, while others suffer terrible agony.
2: Yes, and the the point is that if we could predict who is going to withdraw easily and who is going to go through agonies, we could reserve the benzodiazepines, which do have some positive effects, just for those who are not going to run into problems. But we can't predict, and therefore you have to look at the totality of the distress that is caused the back of my mind that these people are taking their benzodiazepines for many years, decades. Maybe it's having an effect on the brain as well. So we used the uh, imaging techniques available at the time and looked at a group of patients who hadn't abused alcohol but had been on benzodiazepines for a long time. And we found some anomalies, some abnormalities which concerned us and we thought, view the extent of usage of these benzodiazepines, there were millions of people literally who might be at risk and we needed to go into this in more detail. Uh, so we, I asked for the Medical Research Council to look into this and they agreed and set up this uh, subcommittee which met and we looked at the evidence, the report went, to the neurosciences board of the Medical Research Council but nothing further was done about it.
1: Can you understand why the results of that meeting, the record of that meeting uh, was kept secret for three decades?
2: Well it wasn't secret in the sense that we weren't uh, adjured to secrecy, there was no official secrets act and I was very surprised to find out later that those minutes hadn't been released so I don't know what was was going on but there was concern about it and I know that uh, I think Professor Heather Ashton, I'm sure you'll ask her that, she also put forward a proposal which was turned down.
1: Both you and Professor Lader put research proposals to the Medical Research Council. He wanted to investigate um, some prima facie evidence he had of structural damage to the brain from uh, benzodiazepines Uh, you wanted to follow up um, uh, with a research group based on your clinic and a proposal to put to the Medical Research Council for a a very authoritative study,
3: and they turned that that as well. We never got money for it. I had a very good um, sample of people, because I had 300 patients at that clinic who followed for several years. I knew all their brothers, sisters, spouses, you know, people who'd had a similar upbringing, so you couldn't. Uh, you couldn't say, oh, well, it, you know, you, you're not select, you've got a selective group. And so people who, 300 who were on benzos, 300 relatives or spouses who weren't. We could have done MRIs, We uh, studies on that for structural things. We could have done a lot of um, cognitive tests to see if they were impaired because something I haven't mentioned, which is perhaps the greatest tragedy of all, is when people are on benzos, um, their thinking is impaired and they're prone to traffic accidents, making bad decisions, all sorts of things, and poor memory. And um, so we, we could have looked for that, see if that recovers. Um, and other th- things with um, looking at brain function with uh, things like EEG and magnetoencephalography as well which are ways of looking at actual, the way that neurons in the brain are firing. We could have done all that on large number of patients. And I tried the MRC and the Wellcome Research Council and the Medical Research Council and the Wellcome. Never got the money for it. I don't think it was considered as a serious enough condition. I don't know why.
1: In Newcastle, Professor Ashton wrote her now famous manual on benzodiazepines describing the symptoms and showing how to withdraw slowly. It's free on the internet. A book could have made her a fortune. It's the Bible worldwide for victims of doctor-induced benzodiazepine illness. Professor Ashton became a medical advisor and friend to victims everywhere. This is a bound volume of some of the thousands of letters and emails she's received from all over the world, made by a grateful patient. The consultant who recommended I take Valium for Meniere's disease brushed aside my concern, saying it was a most maligned drug that could be a preventative against Meniere's attacks. He stopped prescribing Valium for Meniere's now, a lesson learned at a huge cost to me. When I started getting darting pains in my legs, I searched the web and in shock found the Ashton Manual, which explained what was happening to me. You wrote the Ashton Manual, which was published on the web. It's about benzodiazepines, how they work, and also about how to withdraw from uh, benzodiazepines. Why did you do that? Was it in response to a very big need?
3: Well, yes, uh, because the patients seemed to know more than the doctors. They, All of them said the reason they'd come here was because they got no help from their GP or from a psychiatrist. I had patients referred <laughs> from psychiatrists even. And they, the patients seemed to know better than the doctors. And so I wrote that manual for patients who couldn't get help from their doctors. It was for them. And the interesting thing is, although patients all over the world have snapped it up, the doctors still don't read it. Actually, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that um, the, in all the literature telling you how to prescribe drugs, they all say that benzodiazepines are for short-term use only, uh, two to four weeks maximum, and even the company that makes them says that, but it's just that nobody takes any notice.
1: How many languages is it translated into now?
3: Well, it's over 12. Over, over 12. <laughs> there's, there's a Japanese one. Uh, there's all the European languages.
1: It has been used by literally millions of people all, well, all over I the world. Well, I
3: presume so, yes. Uh, I mean, if you look at the prescription levels, uh, interestingly, Japan has the highest in the world <laughs> prescription levels at the moment of benzodiazepines. And th- they're lapping it up. And You know, all these things have been translated by people um, voluntarily. I mean, they've never been paid for it or, or anything like that.
2: I suppose suicide is a possible outcome. I think it's more of it is maybe hidden because people don't try and come off the medication, don't come off the tranquilizers. They think it's helping them and they go on and in fact they, they go to the grave with a bottle of tablets beside them. I think it's that, that's where the hidden amount is. It's, you don't know that you've got problems until you try and stop.
3: Well, drug, drug companies are a business And when we, many medical students do actually go into drug companies, they've got far more facilities and things. And we always used to say, oh, you're going to sell your soul. They do sell their souls. And the drug companies are there to make money. I don't think they have any more scruples than tobacco companies, which are already making a great fuss about smoking. And the drink, drinking uh, uh, industry, they're all making a terrible fuss if anybody tries to So I don't think drug companies would fund it.
2: Yes, the problem is that most of these tranquilizers and sleeping tablets are out of patent, which means that there's no um, profit left in the uh, drugs. Now, the only financial incentive which would come would be if there's a lot of medical-legal cases uh, which uh, develop, so that people are beginning to sue uh, because they've gone through a withdrawal reaction. But there are cases now which are coming through. Now, I predict that if those cases are successful, and so far they really haven't come to court, we will find that the um, doctors' organisations will start to issue warnings that long-term prescription is not acceptable This is what we call ex-label prescribing. In other words, it's not covered by the license which the medication is given when it is authorised. So I think that might be a development, that there will be a tightening up, but it will be imposed on the medical profession by the legal profession. Lawyers are looking for personal injury cases, and if they can tap into this, get a few um, cases in which the judge is on the uh, claimant's side, that is the patient's side, you could open floodgates of everybody who's been on medication beyond the licence month or whatever uh, threatening to sue their general practitioners. And that again, I think, or the National Health Service of course, that again I think would be uh, a major development. But I don't see many signs of that. It's, There's starting to be cracks in the dam, but they're not
0: large yet. So we're doing a redo on the episode because I had some glitches on my end, apparently, where I sounded like a chipmunk.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but on speed. Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. So uh, we're <laughs> discussing the documentary, The Aspen Medical Disaster by Shane Kelly. Um, I found the documentary, My Acute Withdrawal, um, and I saw the thumbnail of Heather Ashton, Professor Heather Ashton. I was like, oh, I know her from the manual. And that's how I got to see it for the first time. When was your first time seeing it?
5: mm mm-hmm. um, My first time seeing what? Sorry, the the documentary. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, when you sent it to me, I was shocked. I was like, oh, my God, this is a really decent, very, very, like, full of inf- rich of information. Like, you know, you'd, I'd watch that and be like, wow, this is happening in the world. I was shocked that I'd never seen it before, um, because obviously I've been through benzo withdrawal and I Googled, you know, for hours on end and I never came across it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how we find certain things. And then recently I found the other documentary called Ada versus Adavan, which Mm. was also very fascinating, which we also discussed. Um, Let's see some of the topics that they, well, they touched every topic, in my opinion. I was like, it's so informative and I would recommend everyone to see it. Mm. So what were a, a few of the things that stood out for you from the documentary?
5: Well I mean they cover like everything and it's all completely true and I just wish everyone would watch this documentary and and care um, because for me what really stands out is like the fact that this was filmed you know a while ago and this is still happening now and nothing has changed. Um, I just find it so shocking and also because I was met with so much disbelief from my family and from every single doctor I went to until I found you know, a psychiatrist who was knowledgeable about all of this, which is incredibly rare to find. So it's all still happening and doctors are s- still saying that it's not happening and it's it's just really disturbing. And it's really heartbreaking because I think in the documentary, it goes through the fact that, you know, people lose their family and their friends and their entire lives co- completely disintegrate because of this awful drug withdrawal that they end up in. Um, I mean, it covers so many points. And I think for me, the mo- the most shocking thing is that people still don't know about this.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. And um, just the fact that it was made in 2016. Mm. I think you mentioned in our previous take um, something about you hadn't seen this on Channel 4. And you would have watched it even if you weren't aware about benzodiazepines, I think. Yeah. So this has been out for so long and they've known for so long. So one of the many things that I find very uh, interesting about documentary is that um, there's a history lesson. So he does mention like it was um, invented somewhere in the fifties or whatnot. And then in 1961, there was an experiment um, and they force fed Librium, which is the first benzodiazepine um, invented. Mm. and, And they put the inmates on, that for 2 months and then they yanked them off and then uh, some of them had seizures and a lot of them had like very bizarre you know acute withdrawal situations so mm-hmm. they there was a already ready already and obviously no one you know listened and they went on to produce valium the second benzo and they mm-hmm. just promoted it anyway knowing what it could do to people
5: I know that is so bad it's like wow people are having seizures And there are there are huge risks to these medications. It's like you'd think that medication was given out and tested and the doctors are like, no, there's no risks here. It's completely safe. Whereas with benzos, I mean, there are so many risks and they've known that. And I just I don't understand why they are still prescribed and they're not completely banned. Like we were saying before, you know, only only used in crisis situations in a hospital by a doctor
0: yeah definitely and i think they they make such valid points for example they estimate and they don't know this for sure that up to 30 percent can have really bad withdrawals and seeing that these you know drugs are being prescribed massively throughout the world and i think that one of the professors is saying like if we could predict in advance who will suffer a great deal and who won't we can you know reserve the benzodiazepines for the people that won't suffer but we can't predict it so we have to look at the totality of it all and i was like yeah because if that if we just stick to the four weeks maximum like maximum Mm. we wouldn't have any of of these issues and then there's another group that takes you know their bottle of benzodiazepines to the grave and we won't know if they will get sick because they just they never try to withdraw from them I
5: know. And that's exactly it. There's like such a huge, broad span in this. There's like some old ladies that are still taking it seemingly okay, But then there's so many there's so many side effects to a benzodiazepine. They might be having pain in their body or I don't know, all sorts of issues that they might not have connected it to the benzo. But actually, it could be. Or there's people like you and me who get quite sick quite quick. I mean, it didn't take long. It took about a month for me to really start. Getting really sick, and I have actually met people who have taken it for two weeks. Uh, lorazepam in particular, thinks it's a short-acting one, and afterwards, you know, just after those two weeks, stopping it and their anxiety being so unnaturally high, um, and then obviously starting that roundabout, oh my god, I need to take it to not have anxiety, and then getting into this into this absolute mess. Um, so there is there is just like a huge span of people and that's why doctors can can say to you oh but i've got somebody you know on this who's 90 years old and they're fine it's like well are they fine
0: <laughs> and also yeah really are they? Yeah. You know, there's
5: like a trillion people like me and you who like yeah suffer endlessly
0: yeah and i think one of the good things that you point out is that i think a lot of people get paradoxical reactions to benzodiazepines unaware. Mm. Um, the lorazepam, which it's it's, I think it relates to lorazepam a lot, um, but I was dosing myself like three or four times a night because I wasn't sleeping, so I never had the intradose thing. But I never really felt well or rested. It didn't knock me out like it was supposed to. And I think when I, you know, switched to the flurazepam, which is a long acting benzodiazepine, I I thought I was doing well on that. But now with the gift of hindsight, it's like no, I stabilized on that benzo because it's long acting, but. I think there's a, a whole group of people that are being prescribed a benzodiazepine and they don't really react well to it or, and they get really sick really fast. Mm. And then we're all, so also if I were to be a GP and if I would even prescribe a benzodiazepine to a patient, I would check in with them within a few days. Like, how did you react? And if someone's like, oh, I feel super anxious. I'm not sleeping still. Then I'm like, okay, then benzos are not the drug for you. You need to get off now, you know? Yeah.
5: Yeah. A hundred percent like oh and, and, and there's just such a fine line of the whole benzo thing because the side effects can mimic mental illness and you can start not sleeping and you know if you went in for anxiety initially they could be like "Well, wow, this is your anxiety disorder and it's just such a mess and there's, there's it's so easy for doctors to say that it's you and blame you um, and I mean yeah if you're having unnatural anxiety and insomnia and it's getting worse it's definitely the benzo there's no other reason for that um yeah and it's that's why i feel like god this documentary i mean it covers so much but it's just the fact that like none of my pe- n- no one i know has seen this you know no one knows about this and when i when i stopped taking my benzo um and then was ended up in horrendous withdrawal you know i was called a drug addict and i had friends of mine taking me to narcotics anonymous and you know the fact that benzos are listed as addictive, it doesn't mean you're addicted like I'm trying to get high. It means that your body becomes so dependent that you can't function without it. And still, I mean, this was a common misunderstanding between my friends and my family that they they genuinely thought that I'd been taking this as a like addiction. Um, And that's where, like, I feel like the drug companies get away with this kind of thing because they put the word addictive on there, but they don't necessarily, they should really say dependent. I mean, the, the two words are very different. And I think that's, that's another reason why maybe this is still happening is because the drug companies haven't really explained exactly what these drugs do. And for some reason, doctors are still handing them out. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. But I think as a world, as a society, um, I think the whole concept of needing a drug, if you don't mm. take the drug, you could die or go into horrendous withdrawal and you want to die. Um, I think that concept is not very clear to people. I yeah. Before yeah. all of this, before I knew all of this, I never knew there would be a drug that you could die or get crazy by not taking it. So mm. it's very true that the heroin and the ecstasy or whatever drugs they're out there these days, I don't know, but it's like, okay, you're taking these drugs to get that high and you want to get that high and you're pursuing the high. But if you don't take it, you won't die. But maybe some addicts would go for that high. We don't go for that high and we have to take it in order not to die. I never heard anything. Yeah like that before in my entire life with benzos obviously if i knew i would have never quit cold turkey i mean there's so many things i would have done differently mm-hmm. but i never there was no warning nothing for me like oh you could potentially die if yeah. you um, quit cold turkey or um you know stop rapidly because all mm-hmm. my you know, insert pamphlets say gradually. Now, what is gradually? It's like very, not even slow. They don't even say slow in my country. It's just gradually. So what does mm. that I mean? I was thinking I'm going from 90 to 30 to 15 to zero. That's gradual within a few weeks, but that was way too fast, obviously. So I mean, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's yeah, just crazy how this works. And also, you know, I've heard here and there people saying like, oh, it, it, you know, it, it seems that benzodiazepines are harder to withdraw from than heroin and then professor later saying oh you know heroin people get off it all the time they go to jail and they have they go on cold turkey they get some help but they get off and i'm like yeah that's kind of true <laughs> you know like yeah you know, you know it makes me think like maybe i should have asked for heroin instead of benzodiazepines me too. Make- i could i should have just taken heroin honestly <laughs> because yeah
5: like <laughs> you know the, the damage caused i think you're, you're so right it's like it's so like you can't even imagine that this could even happen you know if it hadn't happened to you you'd be like okay that's not true that can't happen to people in terms of getting on a drug and then literally being so dependent on it like you'd stop taking it and you just can't function you become unwell you look like you're having a psychotic breakdown and then you you know it's just it's crazy um what can happen and and okay. your body's set on
0: fire. And <laughs> yeah, the body's just... set on
5: fire. And all these crazy things happen. And yeah. And then the doctors are there being like, Oh no, this this can't this can't be the case. And it's so it's so scary and it's so it's such a horrible place to be where you're in that place, you've got the doctor saying it's you. Um, and you're going on Facebooks and you're googling and you're finding all these support groups and there's and you're finding that there's other people out there. and then you find Professor you know Ashton who has got this whole tapering thing and you're like, what the hell? And like I was saying before, how I think I, I, I did try and show the Professor Ashton's um, tapering uh, thing and to a doctor. and they were just like, what? I'm not following this like you don't know what you're talking about you can just stop Valium you know I think at that point I was on Valium because they tried to cross me over do a straight switch and I was having the most awful experience uh, obviously because you're not supposed to do a straight switch and um, yeah they were just saying to me oh you can just stop Valium tomorrow this is obviously something to do with you and I was showing them all this research and I was just like why there's yeah there's two worlds there's like people who are trying to make a difference, like Professor Ashton and those people making the documentary. And then there's our medical world who just seem to be completely
0: ignoring it. Yeah, definitely. I really feel like the Ashton manual should be in medical training, Mm -hmm. even if it's like a paragraph, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes I feel like for me and you, you know, we, we come across so many people too, way too many people that have had a situation like us, unfortunately. Um, But it seems to me like maybe sometimes this is my feeling that it's like, oh, maybe a few people get really ill and that's just collateral damage. Mm.
5: Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't work for everyone. But I'm sure the people that it does work for way outweighs, you know, the others or whatever. Whereas there are so many people suffering and it's not just benzos, you know, because now I'm bloody polydrugged poly on three medications. Uh, you know, I've I've then gone into the antidepressant world and the antipsychotic world and each different world has a huge amount of people who are harmed, who are having terrible side effects. You know, one girl who had um, a single mother who took metazapine, which is an antidepressant, she took it for like three days. She had a paradoxal reaction, like you were saying, you know, a lot of people can have a paradoxal reaction, which is for people listening is obviously just like an allergic reaction to, Mm -hmm. to to the drug. And then she had severe, I mean, I suppose I would call it brain injury where she couldn't stand up and she was bedridden and is currently still bedridden from taking an antidepressant for three days. So. You know, there are these people and this does happen to people and the doctors so casually hand them out. That's what I find so disturbing. Because Mm -hmm. obviously I went in for tinnitus, as did you. And there are so many other things that they could have suggested for us, you know, like therapy to get through, you know, help you sleep better with your tinnitus. Maybe listening to some music when you go to bed or, you know, there's just other things that you could tell somebody rather than giving them something far worse than heroin and what you were saying with heroin as well is you know you go through a detox with heroin and then it's kind of done I mean you have that feeling I guess that you want it but it's it's not like that with a benzo I never had that feeling of oh my god I really need to take my benzo I only had it because I was getting withdrawal symptoms meaning horrific shit going on Mm -hmm. like scary shit and you're like oh my god okay I'll try and take this pill to try and take it away and in the end it just didn't work but I wanted
0: nothing to do. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted nothing to do with the pills at some point when they switched me over to the Valium, which I responded very poorly to because there was no crossover, but a switch over, Mm -hmm. too high of a dose of that. And then you're basically an acute withdrawal from your original Benzo. And -hmm. I remember, look, I'm going to call Turkey. I'm going to nail this because I don't know. I knew nothing. I was like, maybe I'll have a few bad days or weeks. I don't know. And I actually put all of my benzodiazepines in another room. Like, I'm not going to be taking them. I don't think I'm gonna have an unquote weak moment where I'm gonna try and take it because like you yeah. say, it's different but then I, you know, I almost died after two or three days, not taking a single Benzo after, I don't know, five years, whatnot, mm. high dosage. And then I almost died. And then I had this kind of moment where I was like, okay, I am actually dying here. And then I had to take the Benzo, which I didn't want. I was like, even in my sickest moment, um, basically having a heart attack or something mentally unwell seizures, grand mal seizures. I think I was standing at the, my, all of the pills and was like, Hmm, I really don't want to take these pills, but apparently <laughs> I'm dying. So I was actually kind of thinking it through. And then I took 15 milligrams of fluorazepam and within half hour I slept for a couple of hours. And then, you know, that's when my aha moments started like, Oh, I'm, I'm dying without these pills. What is that? Like, so mm-hmm. weird. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I mean, and during my withdrawal, you know, the hell that we go through or have been through. And I got so angry at some point. I was so frustrated that I was bound to these pills now that I wanted nothing more to do with. I just threw the pills across the room mm-hmm. at some point. Um, yeah, I want, nothing. you know, I'm taking uh, currently I'm on five milligrams of diazepam slash Valium. I take it because I have to, but it's not that I'm obsessed with like, oh, I want that Valium or I really need the Valium. No, it's like uh, it's oxygen for me now because I'll die without it, but I want nothing more to do with it.
5: Yes, no, completely, completely. And I think it is a really hard thing for people to grasp because I think as soon as you say the words medication, to people like people just shut off and I think before before that this happened to me I just had no idea I didn't even want to know about medication and there's this real kind of like collective consciousness with people and I, I notice it in people that there's only very few people that have really taken interest in my story and my withdrawal story like my friends or you know who've really actually tried to work out what happened um, and, and a lot of people are very happy just to not do not care it's not happening to them so why do they care they're just going to get going to get on with their lives yeah um, there there is really like that and I think also because you're not a doctor so people are like well she's not a doctor so she she's obviously just crazy and bitter and just talking about you know ranting about medications <laughs> with like is- some sort of weird mental health issue whereas actually ironically what I'm saying is true And actually I know more than a lot of doctors about all these medications. And there's this huge gap of like misinformation, like doctors don't know how to taper
0: us off. They know nothing about what these drugs do and this just keeps happening. And And I, yeah. And I think as long, because you know, I I guess I would say that we were on quote regular people before any like those Mm. people that don't seem to understand Um, we know heroin we know cocaine there's been plenty of movies and stuff, Um, there is no narrative for something that you pick up at the doctors that it's, you know, um, promoted as safe. If my doctor would have told me, like, you could potentially die and, um, you know, once you're on it, um, you will be cognitively impaired, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Um, This is what it will do to your whole body, potentially. I would have never taken it, obviously. But I think that there's so many people that don't know about this kind of dependency. I never knew about this. I thought addicts were seeking a high. Um, That's all I knew. Addiction. I did not know the concept of physical dependence. I had no clue about that. And I think that's where the gap really is. And also how it goes. You go to your doctor. You think you're getting help. You think you're taking a safe drug. And then this happens. It's so surreal. It's like... Uh, Another multiverse. It's like I'm not a conspiracy thinker at all, at all. But I do understand, like this is such a sub world that nobody knows seems to know about, or just us. It's like why? Why is it this connection to my experience that sadly a lot of people have the same experience, being set on fire, wanting to die, Mm. wanting nothing medications and doctors don't believe you and people don't believe you it's very very difficult and then i think that's why documentaries like this and our podcast and whatever that we do trying to raise awareness i think this is a very good thing that is happening and i hope at some point the world will wake up like professor later say we need a wake-up call yes we needed a wake-up call back then in 2016 but before that there's so many people that went before us sadly and maybe took their own lives that mm-hmm. already went through the hell that we went through it's just crazy
5: i mean with no doubt there are people taking their own lives every day um going through this a hundred percent you know, people are either left in withdrawal, called crazy, deserted by their family and friends, which is ha- what happened to me. Um, you know, and if you're in that place of complete aloneness and you're like, well, there's no way out. There's no cure because, you know, there is no cure for benzo withdrawal but apart from time. And Christ, you're told so many different things. And even in the benzo forums, no one really knows. I mean, the, everyone's learning by pe- through people's experiences. But actually, everyone's experience is so different. The reason, you know, I stabilised after seven months, eight months off the drug um, in severe withdrawal by reinstating a tiny bit of it. And, you know, at no point before had that helped. And for some reason, that seventh or eighth month out, I stabilised to a place of pure stabilisation. I mean, it's actually insane.
4: It is. Because before that,
5: I was completely psychotic, pacing, pacing and crying, you know, 24-7 every day 24 7 so yeah there is no it's, it's a really scary place to be because like there is no cure and I, I just really want the drugs banned and so this doesn't happen to anyone I mean do yeah, we really I- need this instant fix for anxiety do we really need this instant fix for insomnia like there are so many other ways we can do this naturally yeah
0: the only personal thing that I see where that can be beneficial is for an emergency. And I feel mm. like that should not be GPs. So let's say, for example, whatever is happening, and you haven't slept in two months, and you're going towards a psychotic break, because you haven't slept or weeks or something like that. You yeah. could go to ER and they can give you one or two tablets for two days or three, I don't know, something very short. And then like, okay, but this is, you need to go and talk to somebody. You need help. This is a temporary, this is a fix for one or two days. So you can sleep after not, but it's not, that's it. Three days, three days that, that you know, this option is no longer available because these drugs are dangerous. And I think as a patient, if you would have to get a specific drug at a hospital or ER, maybe Mm. it sounds more severe you know if if a doctor's like you know here you are it's safe and just take it whenever I give it to all ladies or whatever that they say you know um it's it's a different situation so um so and maybe for like a a surgery or something because I do believe that they're sometimes used for surgery so that you forget so so it's helpful for that but only like in a hospital er setting like you know emergency setting not to like at a gp and gps Mm. I'm sorry there may be good GPs out there, but some of them fuck up and they don't know what they're prescribing. And once you are physically dependent, they don't know how to get you off. So it mm-hmm. shouldn't be GPs, in my opinion.
5: I mean, when I was in withdrawal and I was saying I was in intense pain and I had shooting pains all over my body, they were like, oh, why don't you take gab- gabapentin? Take gabapentin. That's a painkiller. Gabapentin is another drug that is called addictive. By addictive, it's the same thing. You become dependent And there they were just handing out some other addictive drug. I mean, it's absolute madness, the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I remember because I, I guess like you, I went in for, hey, I wanna taper my um, benzodiazepine and I went in with just a benzo. I was just, you know, physically dependent on one benzo. I came out during this whole process. And luckily, I never was on them for very long with Seroquel, which is catayapine. They gave me the um, all this junk. And I specifically asked them to if they were going to prescribe me something. And I was just very gullible and thinking that maybe they wanted to help and give me stuff to help with the, you know, getting off of the benzos, I specifically told them I wanted nothing addictive or that was going to make me dependent. And still they gave me that crap.
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what the hell? And then also like you say, once you're stuck on it and then you start having these side effects, it's very easy for a doctor to then be like, oh, well, clearly you're just insane. And then you're like, shit, I need somebody to prescribe this to me. And I mean my NHS doctor won't prescribe it to me he doesn't want the responsibilities so I've had to go I've had to go private um, and get this get these drugs privately so I can mm-hmm. take off them and it's not that I'm a drug addict it's literally that I cannot function without it
0: right yeah i mean <laughs> we're all stuck in this same horrible boat together although mm. i think we're, we're it as gracefully as we can so about chain kelly who you know i i felt bad for him because he has protracted withdrawal he mm. seems to still suffer from symptoms because he was prescribed benzodiazepines but i do feel that he brings a certain fierceness into this documentary which i like he's like very like a crime against humanity yeah very fierce i, I, I live I, I i loved it
5: i really love it too and i love his tone and his voice And how, you know, you listen to him and you're like, yeah, I'm taking, I'm taking you seriously because he's like, he's got that kind of voice. Definitely,
0: definitely. And also in terms of, I think he says, um, you know, governments are responsible. um, The pharmaceuticals are responsible. Like there's so many cogs in this situation. Um, I've been actually thinking about that lately, but I really think that governments should act because you know as we said people lose their income their jobs they they you know they need medical care psychiatric care so I think it's really up to governments to make sure that this is just you know being more monitored or banned something I think it's in their best interest as well to protect people from getting ill of benzodiazepines
5: Mm. yeah yeah I mean I just I don't know in my lifetime i would just really like to see this changed and the whole way mental health is treated by by our western like doctors just it's just so disturbing it's like it's there's a pill for everything
0: yeah yeah and just not being told what this pill actually does yeah (laughs) because it doesn't Help with sleep on the long term. It does not help with anxiety, it just makes it worse. Like you said in the previous take, like you're cursed by a witch. Like, hey, you know, take this pill, it will help you only to come back. You know, the problems a thousand fold. Um, so that's how insidious and evil these drugs are, in my opinion. Mm,
5: mm. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I will I really enjoy the documentary, and I'm glad that you, you know. You showed it to me because it's something that I can now show other people. I think it's really, it's a really, really good, really informative. And I'm gonna put it on my website, beating beatingthebenzo.com. Um, so you know, if there are other people out there who have got family and friends just not willing to believe them or their doctor, maybe you know, you can be like watch this documentary
0: (laughs) exactly and i think that's really good about your website it's it's kind of like a hub right of all these Mm. like information and i think you're doing a great job and that's the great thing with the internet that's the great thing about podcasting so we can really bring everything you know together like there have been people that have been warning about this all this time and we're just bringing that together i think it's great that you're doing it thank you so much for doing this episode with me and i will speak to you soon
5: Great. Love you talking to you.
0: Okay. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the episode. Be well. Be safe. Remember, it's not a race. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, go to paypal.me slash